Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. Let us begin by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your good gifts and everything that you give us is good. We thank you most of all for the gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We also thank you, Father, for the gift of salvation and eternal life by grace through faith. We ask you, Father, also to have the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts to guide and direct us this morning as we're together and hearing your word. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray for the Jewish people this morning, both in Israel and our country and around the world. Um, The amount of anti-Semitism on display right now is quite frankly disgusting. And I would just ask for you to, for your prayers, and if you face it, please address it with, with anybody who wants to talk bad about the Jewish people. Okay. Our missionary organization this month is Mission Aviation Fellowship. As we've been saying, you can always learn more on their website, www.maf.org. Today's message is coming from John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. I'd like you to turn there now. John chapter 4, verse 7, as we continue in our series on the Gospel of John. John chapter 4, verse 7. And while you're turning there, the title today is from verse 26. Come on. I who speak to you am he. We're going to see today that this is the climax of this conversation between the Lord and a Samaritan woman. But we're also going to see how we get there, how he gets there with her, and how masterful he is in directing the conversation between them so that he brings her step by step to understand who he really is. I who speak to you am he. All right, John chapter 4, verse 7. John chapter 4, verse 7. Let's get to it. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. By the way, I want to quickly point out something. that Notice how he started this conversation. All right, it's back in verse 7. What did, he, what did he say to her? Give me a drink. How simple that is, right? Right? It's a request. Right? He's not, he's not putting in, he's not giving him all of his opinions on everything. He's just asking her for something. All right? Give me a drink. Keep that in mind as we go forward today. All right. So again, verse 9. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. But Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water in Jacob's well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. 
But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Jesus must have been really excited at the first part. Sir, give me this water. Unfortunately, she kept talking. So I will not be thirsty or come all the way to here to draw. He, she didn't really understand what water he was talking about. Verse 16. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. That must have struck her as odd and a little bit shocking as we're going to see as we go forward. Verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. That's the Samaritans. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. She didn't say that, by the way. That's John's giving us a little more information. When that one comes... He will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So we started last week on this conversation. Much of the Gospel of John is Jesus' conversations, interactions with people. We've already seen a few. We saw in chapter 1 how he had these conversations and interactions with the men who would become his disciples. Then in chapter 2, Three, we saw that interaction, that discussion, that conversation with Nicodemus. Now here in chapter four, we see this conversation with the Samaritan woman. And this will continue throughout the Gospel of John. There's a lot of uh, information, a lot of episodes where he's having a conversation with people, as well as teaching people. So this is the, the Samaritan woman. And he just finished talking last chapter to a Jewish man, Nicodemus. This woman, as it were, was a half-breed. What does that mean? It meant she was partly Jewish, but probably mostly Gentile. Okay. She was of ill repute. Nicodemus was a man who had a great reputation among the people. And she was worn down by life. Worn down by life. And I hope you can sense the compassion of the Lord, as we're going to see, to, to come to her and speak to her in this way. Now, as I already mentioned, the dramatic climax of their encounter occurs in verse 26, the last verse that we read, and I'll put it on the board again. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, meaning the Christ, the Messiah. Remember, let's step back. What's the whole purpose of John writing this gospel? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. In large measure, this gospel is a really simple 
Meaning that again and again, we will have Jesus encountering people who come from a certain place, think a certain way, and then he'll bring them along to start to see who he really is. And the reason why this is done, now remember, the evangelist John selects these episodes. He would say at the end that if everything was written down about what the Lord did, all the books in the world couldn't contain that information. So what does that tell us? He's giving us carefully selected encounters. Why would he do that? Why would he give us these carefully selected encounters where over and over again, he's bringing people to know who he is? And the answer to that is that those people become a mirror because, because depending on where they are, they're gonna see, we're going to see through them and their conversation, their encounter with the Lord, different aspects of who Jesus is. Not only that, but different approaches depending on the person. So in a sense, by the time we're through the gospel, every one of us can step into at least one of the people that Jesus has these encounter with, encounters with and identify with that person. And not only yourselves, but also the people that you come into contact with. You can, for example, you may come in contact with a religious, proud person. Now, who would be a good conversation to see between Jesus and this person in order to understand how to deal with a religious, proud person? Nicodemus, right. On the other hand, you may come upon a person who's broken by life, a woman who's had a lot of failure in her life, in her marriage, and she's, she's worn down by life. In fact, she's an outcast among her own people. So where would you go to see how Jesus handles that kind of person? There we go, the Samaritan woman. You see how that works? We'll see more of that as we go along. Okay. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah. That's the climax. That's, but here's the thing to think in mind. That is where Jesus, from the very start, is bringing her to, or hoping to. Because at the end of the day, she's got to decide whether or not she's going to open her eyes to the truth about who he is. But we're going to watch how carefully crafted Jesus' interaction with her is. He worked hard. He worked, he worked on his feet. He would respond to the woman in such a way that bring her closer. Closer, closer. And, and thinking about this message this morning and thinking about this passage, you have to bear with me because you know I think simplistically. Did you ever, when you were a kid, did you ever play that game hot and cold? Did you ever play that game? You know, closer, hot, hot, oh, cool, up, oh, really hot, right? Well, in a sense, that's how Jesus is seeing things in his interaction with this woman. She starts out pretty cold, as we've seen already this morning, right? She's just thinking about, well, who's this guy? He's got water. I don't know what he's talking about. Seeing really no, no real connection yet with who he really is. As we go along, she's going to get warmer. But first, she's going to stay cold. And we're going to see Jesus take a shift in order to say, well, I've I got to bring her away from being cold. I've got to bring her closer, warmer and warmer. And we'll see where that occurs in this passage as well. It's remarkable, actually, how Jesus worked in his conversation to get her to see the truth about who he really is. And it's interesting, I was reviewing the statements that he made, and we read them this morning. Do you realize that every statement that Jesus made to this woman was a complete surprise to her? From the very start, from the very time that Jesus was sitting there as a Jewish man, and she comes in, going to get water from the well, and he talks to her. You might say, what's the big deal about that? Well, two things, right? Woman and Samaritan. Right? Those were two things that a Jewish man shouldn't do 
talk to a one company woman, talk to a Samaritan, but not only talk to her, ask her for a drink so that you'd be sharing her utensils, as it were, which was forbidden by the, you know, scrupulous rabbis of the day. That's just the start. We see over and over again, every time. In fact, let me just show you that. All right, let's go back and let's just look at the statements that Jesus makes. Just what he says. All right, we, see, we start in verse 7 again. And his very first thing is a request. Give me a drink. But again, that was surprising to her. She didn't expect that man, that Jewish man, to ask her for a drink. Then I want you to notice in verse 10, she's talking about her being a Samaritan woman, and the question he just asked, and he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Another surprise. Another surprise. She must be thinking at this point, who is this guy? Right? Then, then look at verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water in that well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him Shall never thirst. Whoa, time out. Woman has to say, wait, wait, wait a minute. Did I hear that right? That you've got some water that if a man drinks it, he will never thirst again. Right? Isn't that kind of a surprising thing for somebody to say? A little disconcerting? Like a little, make you, make you a little nervous? Who is this guy? Is he who he says he might be? Or is he nuts? Right? A surprise. Unexpected. All right. We'll see, we'll see another one. Look at verse 17. Now, he's still talking about water. She's still talking about water. She has no idea what he's really talking about. The living water is spiritual water. And rather, in 16, what does he say? Go call your husband and come here. Right? Now, why why is that a surprise? Well, first of all, it's got nothing to do with water. It's like, hey, oh, 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 you just made a jump over here. But not only any jump, but a jump into a place where she really didn't want to go. Another surprise. And then then he goes on and shows her, how much he knows about her. You've had five husbands. Now, this is a stranger that just happened to meet by chance, not a Samaritan. Jews didn't go to Samaria, all right? If it were the men in town, she would have perfectly well understood why they knew this information. But how could Jesus have known it? You've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, I perceive you're a prophet. I just want to briefly insert something here. Because there's a big misconception about this passage, in particular the five husbands. See, there are many who want to teach that, well, what Jesus was doing was getting her to focus on her sins and her need for repentance. But it's interesting. If that's what his purpose was, he didn't do a very good job expanding on that. He didn't say anything about the fact that she, of her sins at all. Why? Because that wasn't his purpose here. What was his purpose? To get her to see who he is. And he wasn't going to let anything get in the way of that one goal that he had. All right. Again, now what does he say when she says that he's a prophet and the the, the, the people, you people, say you should worship in Jerusalem up there on the temple. We think you should should worship on this mountain that we can see right here. Jesus, basically she's saying, well, which is the right one? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain which was so sacred to the Samaritans, nor in Jerusalem. This is the Jew saying, Jerusalem's out in terms of worship, for you, you will worship the Father. Again, a shocking, surprising statement, provocative. Wow. 
But an hour is coming and now is. Notice verse 23, where the true worshipers will worship the Father. He calls God his Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The very opposite of the way the Samaritans, they didn't even know who they were worshiping anymore. Remember, the the Samaritans were people who had, a long time ago, had mixed in and actually polluted their understanding of God by taking in all the false gods from the Gentile pagan cultures that came in. Remember that? So they didn't know who they were worshiping, you know? I mean, it's like, I'm I'm, I'm accused of always picking on the Catholics, so I'll try not to. I'll go with the Hindus this time, okay? You know, the Hindus have all these shrines, so like hundreds and hundreds of gods. And gods, if you ask them, who's God, they'll give you this funny look on their face. They don't know. They don't know who they're worshiping. But the Jews did, of course. They may not have lived that way, but at least they knew that their God is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he's saying, that's all out. You worship now in spirit and truth. Doesn't matter what mountain you're on. Doesn't matter what temple you're in. The issue now becomes truth and the spiritual things, which, as we'll see, will be possible because of Jesus and the new era that he will bring upon the world by his death, resurrection, and ascension. When the Holy Spirit will come down, now people can truly worship, right, in spirit and in truth because the Spirit indwells the hearts of believers. All right, so then, then she's really, this is where she's piping hot in verse 25. A woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. By the way, look at all the work he did to get her to this one statement. Because he knew at this point he had her where he wanted her, right? I know that Messiah is coming. She's actually talking about who he is now. Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. She's talking about this third person, this Messiah who's going to come. And at that point, sometime in the future, he'll declare all things to us. One last surprising statement from the Lord, though. Verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who am speaking to you am he. The biggest shock of all. Imagine that. The biggest shock of all. Every statement that the Jesus made to this woman was a complete Surprise to her. Unexpected, provocative, at times mind-blowing. He brings her a long way in a short conversation. At the outset, all she sees is a tired and thirsty traveling man. Oh yeah, I got a little animation today. Traveling Jewish man asking her for a drink. That's right, isn't that where it starts? Here she is, she's carrying her bucket. She's finally come down the hill to finally get to Jacob's well. Of course, she's going to have to turn around and go up that hill with, with a full bucket rather than an empty one, which is, you know, think about that. But that's all she sees him as. A traveling Jewish man who's come through, and now he's asking her for a drink. But it turns out that he has no qualms about taking a drink from a Samaritan woman. That's different. Turns out not only that, but he's a greater man than Jacob. Hmm, now we're making some progress here. Not only that, but he has living water that anyone who drinks will never thirst again. Can you see how he is adding to who he is, moving her along, getting her from where she started concerning who she thought he was to getting her to where he needs to get her, which is seeing that he's the Messiah. Not only that, but he knows everything about her. 
Wait a minute. This goes from a Jewish man sitting by the, by the side of a well to a man who knows everything about her, who's greater than Jacob, who has living water that a man drinks and will never thirst again. That's a lot of new stuff that the woman was trying to come to terms with. See the work that Jesus is doing? To kind of almost overwhelm her with, with the truth about who he is so that something will click. Turns out that he's the prophet. Now, a prophet is one thing, but we're going to see he's the prophet. And we'll see how different that is. And it turns out that he is ushering in a whole new age of worship. A whole new age of worship. And finally, he's the Messiah. I wonder what the last time when uh, you did that much work in a conversation with somebody. Right? When you brought somebody to a place where they didn't know anything. To a place where they were ready to see the hope that our people have always had is standing before me. That's an incredible conversation. Okay, as a matter of fact, it's breathtaking. In every sense of the word. You've got to catch your breath after you even talk about all those things. So now let's take the journey with them. One statement at a time. Beginning in verse 13. Back to verse 13. John chapter 4, 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water, that's Jacob's well now, will thirst again. That was pretty obvious. And so far, no surprises, right? But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, that living water, will never thirst. But the water that I will give him, he has it. He has it to give and He will give it to those who are willing to drink it. I will give him, will become in him. Now pay attention. In him. A what? Well of water inside him. We'll see where. Springing up to eternal life. Now, it's interesting because, as we're going to see, the woman still didn't understand that this wasn't ordinary water. She's still thinking he's talking about H2O. But clearly, I mean, when we see this with eyes to see, we clearly see he's talking about supernatural water. I mean, anybody who was really listening to what he had to say had to come to that conclusion. This isn't ordinary water. I've never, I've never, look, trying to tell me that some, some, all I have to do is drink this cup and I will never thirst again. You will say, hmm, you've got to learn more biology, Pastor. Couldn't have been natural water. It's another kind of water. It's a water that quenches not the thirst in your body, but the thirst in your soul. That's the thirst that he comes to quench. By the way, the Psalms and the prophets in the Jewish Bible talked about this thirst. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 42, verse 1. Now keep in mind that the Samaritans did not recognize any book in the Hebrew Bible past the book of Deuteronomy. That the only books that they thought were the word of God were Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And even there, by the way, they corrupted some things so that it could line up with what their beliefs were. They, but they certainly did not accept David. This is the key. They didn't accept David, therefore they didn't accept the Psalms. And they didn't accept any of the prophets that came after David, all right, all of whom gave more information about who the Messiah is, all of whom were revealing things that weren't revealed in the books of the first five books of the Bible. For example, Psalm 42, verse 1. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for waters, water brooks, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants, thirsts, 
for you, O God. Notice it's about the soul. He's doing the same thing here, the psalmist, that Jesus is trying to do with the woman. He's talking about, all right, I think you understand how a deer who is, who is parched for thirst is just looking for a place where there's some water. I get that. But now, let's talk about our souls. See, our souls thirst for you, God. That's the only thing that satisfies our soul. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? If that woman knew this psalm and she said these things in her heart, at the end, what would she find out? She is appearing before God. In any event, the water from Jacob's well, that hole in the ground, deep as it was, going to an underground stream, marvelous source of water, mentioned this last Sunday, it still exists today and it still has water for the people. Thousands of years after this event with Jesus. But that water, that well, could never become a well of, a well of water in the man. It was a well of water in the ground. But it never became a well of water in the man, right? I mean, even gravity would fight against that, right? You drink a glass of water and it goes down. Now, if it's, now sometimes it does come back up, but that's not leading to eternal life, right? When the water comes back up and it's in your lungs, you're going the opposite direction, maybe. So it's certainly normal water does not go into a man, stay there, and become a well that leads to eternal life. H2O will not spring up in a man in a fountain that leads to eternal life. But Isaiah prophesied about springs of water that do bring salvation. And he did that. Let's turn to Isaiah 12. Go forward to Isaiah 12 from Psalm 42. Again, Old Testament, Isaiah. Okay? The, the Samaritans didn't recognize. They, they said, no, we're not going to listen to anything about Isaiah. Okay? By the way, you know the sad thing is? We're studying Isaiah in our Thursday evening Bible study right now. And we're seeing how even the Jews didn't want to hear anything about what Isaiah had to say. Jesus, you know, the Lord told Isaiah when he started, right? You will go to a people that has eyes to hear, but has eyes but cannot see and ears that cannot hear. No matter what you say, it won't penetrate. But look what he says in chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. You see, salvation comes from the Jews. God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. There's that living water inside a man welling up to eternal life. Now, back in John... In John 4, 14, remember, Jesus is talking about drinking, right? If you want to go back to verse 14 of chapter 4, we'll, we'll look at it together. Let's start in verse 13, John 4, 13. I know it's not up there, but I'm calling it audible. It's kind of up there. It's just not in yellow, right? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks, now that, that may just seem like a couple of words that he's leading to this great water. But let's stop for a minute. Does he say that anybody who automa- will automatically become a person in whom there's a well of water? No, what? Who? Who is this limited to? Whosoever drinks. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever 
Well, yes, good, you're way ahead of me, right? Believes in him, right? Will not perish, but have that well of water springing in him all the way to eternal life. So drinking is believing. You see it? Drinking, when he says whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, means believing that Jesus is the Christ, believing the gospel, the good news. In that person, that person's soul will never thirst again. That water that he will give him, the one who was willing to drink it, will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He who has believed has passed from death to life. Okay. So now I want you to, I want to show you another passage in the Gospel of John. It's a few chapters going forward in chapter 7. And I want you to see here where Jesus provides more information about what he's talking about so you can't miss it. Please go to John chapter 7. Verse 37. To the Samaritan woman, he said, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Well, in chapter 7, verse 37, when Jesus is in Jerusalem, he is now going to let us know a lot more even about what this, what this water is. Lotus, John chapter 7, verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me. Notice the connection. What is drinking? Believing in him. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from, her, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, that's the exact same thing, really, that he just said to the woman, the Samaritan woman, to become in him a well of water. But now he gives you exactly who, what he, or who he's talking about. But by this, he spoke of the Spirit. So that well of water springing up to eternal life is the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Who remember, he, he is a guarantee of eternal life, Right? That's what he's talking about. By this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. By the way, there was one person to whom the Spirit had already been given, and that's the man speaking. Okay. Back to John chapter 4. Let's now look at verse 15 as we keep going this morning. John four fifteen. The woman must have been thinking, wow, you mean, I don't know if I really get it, but you're telling me that there's some water, and if I drink it, I'll never thirst again. I'm not really sure she actually paid any attention to the rest. You know how it is sometimes? You say something to somebody, and it, they react in a certain way. They're not listening to you anymore. They're over somewhere else. No matter what you say after that, that doesn't register. Well, that's the case here. All she could think about was, oh man, here I am, I'm sitting there by the well. I got to do all this work to get that water that's 100 feet down. Then I got to bring it, and I got to bring it back up the mountain, and I got to do this every day. That's the kind of life she had, drudgery. Now a man comes, and he says that he has water. If you drink it, you'll never thirst again. Now, I don't know who this guy is, but if that's, I will take a risk. Even if there's a 1% chance that he's right, I'm willing to take that risk. Why? 
because she was tired of lugging that water up the hill. So that's what got her attention, right? Just like later on, he will perform that miracle of the five loaves and the two fish. And people want to follow him now, you know? And you might get the impression, reading that the first time, that they're following him because they know who he is. But he clears up the confusion about that. He says, you're only following me because you're hungry again for food. It's the same thing with this woman here. So, in other words, look at verse 15. This this clenches it. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. In other words, she still thinks he's talking about good old H2O, Adam's ale, right? And, of course, we know he's not. Now, Jesus knows where he's going to take her, wants to take her, right? He wants to, he, what he wanted in talking about that living water that springs up to eternal life was to get her mind on, an, on another plane, another level, where, she, where he can, she can start to understand the spiritual truths and the eternal issues that he's bringing up. And he knows now he is never going to get there with her talking about water. It's clear. I mean, what more can he say? And the fact that he has water, you'll never thirst again. And when you drink it, it will be a well of water springing up to eternal life. You know, I mean, game, set, and match as far as I'm concerned, right? Not for her, though. It's not going to work. Talking about water will not get her where he, she needs to go. No matter what he says about water, she's not going to budge. She'll always be fixated on what water means in her dusty, dreary, earthly life. So what does he do? Does he turn around and give up and say, all right, I need another Samaritan woman, <laughs> right? Because i got to get my quota. You know how, you know how like, people that are, that are gospel preachers and everything, they have their quotas, you know? They have a certain number of people that have to sign the book and all that stuff. Well, thank God Jesus wasn't like that. Because he was focused on this one woman, and he was determined to lead her to the springs of life. So what does he have to do? If water's not working, what do you do? Come on. Change the subject. Change the subject. And he does that. And he does it abruptly, instantaneously. And it's a shocker. By the way, right here is where, where we're headed in verse 16 is the turning point in this conversation between Jesus and the woman. And what a turning point it is. John four sixteen. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. I see that you don't want to talk about living water. All right, fine. You want to talk about earthly things? Let's talk about your husband. And notice again, by the way, just like at the beginning, the whole thing started with a request, right? Give me a drink. How does he start phase two? A request. Go call your husband and come here. This was not what the woman wanted to hear. The woman said, answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five. And the one whom you're now with is not your husband. So you've really spoken truly. Go call your husband and come here. Can I say this for sure? He hit a nerve. Sometimes you've got to do that with people. Sometimes, you, got, you know, the worst thing you can do when you're witnessing to somebody, not that you can do, but that the worst situation to have is when a person says, yeah, whatever, I'll see you later. That's not, that's not, they're not going anywhere there. 
I'll think about it. They won't think about it. They're trying to get rid of you. But strike a nerve and see what happens. Strike a nerve and see what happens. Without getting too specific, I recently had a situation where I I had an encounter with a woman who was very angry with me about something I had said behind the pulpit. Now, my first reaction was, oh, man, what did I say? Or, oh, she's going to hate me for life, you know. Thank God I had that little whisper from Paul, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth, right? In any event, she's probably listening right now. I hope she is. But in any event, what I said made her angry. And by the way, from her perspective, I get it. Just like from this woman's perspective, I get it. That saying, talking about her husband would make her upset. But sometimes you've got to do that. Why? Because, again, if people are not looking at what you're saying and the magnitude of it, you've got to give them a, a, a verbal shake, if you would. And some people, you've got to give them a physical shake. That's another story. Oh, there I go. I'm politically incorrect. Touting violence. It'll be on, on the news this evening. <laughs> but in any event, it's true. It's true. I mean, if you think about I don't know what your situations were. They're all different when it comes to hearing the gospel and believing but, I, but I, the Lord had hit me so many times that when I finally found somebody... Now, I, live in a, in a, in a, I lived in an area where there were relatively few what I call evangelical Christians, right? So it, probably, it took a while before I could have this time, I didn't know it, at, with this woman again, who would tell me the truth about the blood of Christ. Okay. Again, verse 16 of chapter 4, Go call your husband... And come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, that's right, you don't. Because you've had five already, and the one you have now is not your husband. Hmm. It all came rushing back to her. That one statement, that one statement, She didn't want to go there. She was perfectly willing to talk about H2O. In a few minutes, she's going to be perfectly willing to talk about the mountain that they're looking at. But the one thing she didn't want to talk about was her personal life. And yet, there it is. There he said it. It's all out in the open. What did she do? She gave a really quick reply and hoped he would just move on and not press the point. But he did press the point. And this was a master stroke. It was only one statement. But the statement would change her forever. That's really what you you want to see the Lord do through your mouth, right? Is to just say one thing that changes somebody's life forever. Now, he's Jesus. He's omniscient. Okay, so he has some advantages over us. But we have the Spirit. And we have ears to hear. And he can do the same thing through us. In any event, that one statement. And what is it? You've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. Now, I want you to think about it. I don't know if you had a situation where you had a checkered past, and you want to forget it, and all you want to do is think about now, and you want to, you want to pretend like that stuff didn't happen. And by the way, for the most part, that's spiritually healthy to do, except when you're a Samaritan woman and an unbeliever, and you need to have the something shake you up. 
That's this. You've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. By the way, he is killing two birds with one stone, as we're going to see in a minute. He's going to change her attitude, and he's going to open her eyes to who he is even more. The one you have now is not your husband. You've had five. By the way, I do want to insert this. We have no idea why she ended up with five different husbands in her life. Oh, there are those who want to say, well, she was immoral. Some even want to say she was a prostitute. But is that, is that spoken of here? Is, is there any indication that she was a prostitute here? Taking your, taking your legalistic hat off for a minute. Especially in that day and age when, when men died young. As a matter, we know the father of Jesus, Joseph, died young. Mary didn't marry again. But, but the culture of the time was if, if, if your husband dies... You get married right away. A woman needed a husband in her life in that culture. So he could have died, you know, one of the two or three of them, right? Uh, A man could have divorced her. By the way, in the Jewish situation, they could divorce a woman for just about any reason. Hmm, right? It was male-dominated society. If you want to blame somebody here, you should blame the five husbands, right? Because they had a... Not, you don't blame somebody for dying, so not that part. But I, I, it could have been that there were a couple that died and three that divorced her. And here she was. And she's had terrible, terrible luck with men, if you think about it. So even though it's immoral and sinful to live with somebody who's, you know, have sex with somebody who's not your husband, you can kind of understand how she might have made that mistake. Okay. But it all comes rushing back. Her failures with men her shattered dreams, her bad decision recently to live in sin. And you know what thinking about that was creating in her, in her soul? I'll give you a hint. A thirst like none other she had ever experienced in her life. It was a thirst in her innermost being. You ever hear that expression, my whole life flashed before me in a moment? Have you ever heard that expression? What's usually the cause of it in most people, huh? Yeah, you have, you have, you're faced with death and your whole life flashes before you. Now she was, in a way, she was faced with death because she was facing with the death of all those parts of her life that ended up in failure, in disappointment, in shattered dreams. Yes, and also in, in a sinful situation. Then she realized that, you know what, this isn't really just about what's going on in my daily life or the water I have to drink. There's something in my innermost being that's a thirst that is screaming out. And I can't quench that thirst. I can't satisfy that. I can't go to any well on earth to satisfy that. This thirst can only be satisfied by God. So that's the thirst part. That's her. But then there's something else that he also accomplishes with that one statement. You have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. Not only did he get her to understand how thirsty she was spiritually, but there's something else. Wait a minute. See, see, it's one thing for somebody to be talking about something in the third person or something in the world and there's water. It's another thing, though, when somebody talks about your life and pinpoints the biggest issue. And not only that, but he knew something about her. This was no ordinary man. Now she finally gets that for sure. Why? Because he knew things about her that he couldn't possibly have known. Couldn't possibly have known. Unless, 
unless he'd been sent by God. Right? Unless he'd been sent by God. Unless God had revealed these things to him, he couldn't possibly have known about her whole life. They just met. Only one answer to that. And because she was in that situation where she was thirsty, now she was open to saying, wait a minute, I think this guy is from God. In other words, after the despair of her past life comes the hope. The hope. She had now learned something very important about him. Verse 19. How does she express it? Now, you can probably, in what she's about to say, you can see there's a kind of an element of sarcasm here. But look beyond that. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm hurt and called to task, and I'm dealing with something I don't want to deal with, and I'm feeling that thirst in my heart, sometimes, you know what, I just got to get rid of it, or, or at least take some time and, uh, to, to process it. So sometimes you want to say something that's kind of a little bit, to get people to kind of step back a little, even though she's about to say the truth. Look at John 4.19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, I want to point out something, though, what she's saying here. Remember, I've already talked about the fact that the Samaritans, they just looked at the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't look at the prophets. As a matter of fact, they didn't acknowledge any of the Jewish prophets after Moses. After Moses. So I want you to think about it. If that, since that's true, what is she really saying about him? If they've never recognized any of the prophets, not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, not Ezekiel, none of them, but she calls him a prophet, what's going on? Well, to answer that question, we need to see what their beliefs were, the Samaritans' beliefs about prophets. Please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9. Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. The Samaritans had a very exclusive viewpoint of what the prophet means. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 9. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. Now, what has happened? Moses has just died. And he's passed the torch to Joshua. He's got to finish the job and get the Jewish people into the promised land. Gets the Israelites. So now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. For Moses has laid his hands on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him, Joshua, and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Joshua now took up the mantle from Moses. But notice verse 10. This is the whole key to understanding what she's really saying, that Samaritan woman. Since that time... No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. Now, the writer of the book of Deuteronomy, okay, was, was Moses and then somebody close to him. Because after he died, he can't be writing the last chapter, obviously. So when, he, when this person is saying this, that no one has risen in Israel like Moses, he's talking about in that period of time. Why do I say that? Because, you know, after they're in the land for 400 years, and then, they're, then, then Moses has taken him out, 
Now they're going into the promised land, which they will have great success in. But, and then they will have the judges that will be there. But there's no prophets yet for a while. Ezekiel, I mean Ezekiel, Elijah won't come for a long time, right? So whoever wrote this, at the time they wrote it, it was still true that no prophet had arisen yet in Israel like Moses. Okay. And then he goes on, he talks, what does he mean by that? The Lord knew him face to face. By the way, Isaiah saw the Lord face to face in that great vision in chapter 6. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh. By the way, why do you think Elijah had the miracle working capability? Why? So, they would, so that the Jews who accepted Elijah would know that he was a prophet like Moses. All his servants in his land and for all the mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Now, if you're a Jew who accepts all of the books of what we call today the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, okay, you would recognize at this point, well, there has since the person who wrote this been prophets like Moses. But the Samaritan woman didn't, right? No. It ended at Deuteronomy as far as she was concerned. So let's think about this. When she said that Jesus was a prophet, she might as well have said that Jesus was the prophet, the one that they expected. You see, they were expecting in the future a prophet like Moses. But, but so if, he, if she's saying prophet, all right, she is saying this, this person is like Moses. It's, it's an amazing thing when you think about it. Well, right now, she is really warm in that game of hot and cold. She's right on the verge of discovering the true identity of this Jewish man. And in a few moments, she'll be ready, and he will tell her exactly who he is. But first, she had a question. She had a question for this prophet. Now, some people want to say she's changing the subject, and that may be, but I don't think that's true at all. I think she's in the moment. I think she's seeing that, wait a minute, I have my understanding of worship, but now this one has come, he's coming from Jerusalem, and he is the prophet. Now I've got to ask him something. Which one is he? Is he a prophet because he's associated with this mountain? I guess I pointed here before. This mountain that we, the Samaritans, worship in? Or is he from the mountain in Jerusalem, where the temple is, where David was, where the prophets were. Because if, if it's this, then everything she thought she understood about the prophet goes right out the window. Okay. Our father, verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. This mountain, by the way, was they, they, it was one they could see right now. I'm going to show you again a map and a picture, maybe two pictures today, that shows you where they were when they had this conversation. Where was Jesus and the woman? Where was Jacob's well? What was around there? Remember we had talked about the fact that he had, he had come right through Samaria when he could have gone around, and he was now making a turn in the bend where he's going between two mountains, and that's where Jacob's well was. Okay. Well, the, one of the mountains was Mount Gerizim. That was the mountain that the Samaritans worshipped on. This was the mountain that they could now see. The woman and Jesus could actually see. They were looking at it. 
And there's a picture of it. This is an actual photograph, by the way, about 100 years ago, where you have Jewish men, and there's the well. Okay? And then over here is Mount Gerizim. Can you see? Like, you can't miss it. Right? It's like, it's like looking up at Mount Washington on a sunny day. Oh, there's my New England guy coming in again. See, Mount Washington is one of these mountains in New Hampshire. It's pretty big. And you can only see it a few days a year because mostly it's covered with clouds. But in any event, couldn't miss it. So he's, he, but she's saying, look, that mountain, that's where the Samaritans, my people say you should worship. All right. I really like this. Maybe hard to see, but it's a panoramic view. You, you know, and basically, I'm just going to kind of lay it out really simply for you. There's the mountain that the Samaritans worshipped on. Here's Jacob's well. By the way, here's a place called Shechem. We won't get into that now. Okay? But here is the city right, that she was from. That's where the disciples now were, getting food. Okay? So you can kind of get, see the lay of the land here. All right. In any event, I like pictures, so I try to get one in every week if I can. It's been a while. I've got to catch up. So now, let's think about it. Samaritans did worship Yahweh on Mount Gerizim. However, they also worshiped false gods. Right? They were confused, in other words. They were very confused. On the other hand, the Jews worshiped Yahweh in the temple at Jerusalem. This was something that the Samaritans just rejected. They built their own temple, by the way, on Mount Gerizim in 400 B.C., which one of the kings later on of Israel, of Jerusalem, of Judea, came and wiped out. <laughs> so there's a lot of friction between these two. Anyway, you call them Hatfield and McCoy, you know, it's that kind of thing. But in any event, the Samaritans didn't know what they were worshiping anymore. They were so confused. Is it Yahweh? Is it this God from that tribe that came in or that other one? Or what are we doing here, right? Jews knew exactly who they were worshiping. Now, back, back, back in the book of Deuteronomy, the, Jew, the Lord had instructed when all the 12 tribes were together, right? The 12 tribes were together for a long, long time. They were together in the 400 years in Egypt. They were together when they were in the 40 years in the desert. They would be together all the way forward until King Solomon, and then they would split. With the, with the two southern tribes staying down here with Jerusalem and ten of them going up north. And it's from those ten tribes that the, that the small number that weren't taken away started marrying the pagans and became the Samaritans. Okay. But let's go back to Deuteronomy and let's just see when they were all together. Deuteronomy chapter 12. The Lord said to all twelve tribes... I want you to worship me in the place that I will choose for you. Deuteronomy 12.5. It's no mistake that we're going to Deuteronomy a lot today. That was the last book in their Bible. So when they were thinking about a launch point to the future, they always, they always started from Deuteronomy, right? Oh, they knew the other script, but in terms of what's going to happen. Remember, Deuteronomy is the book where Moses is repeating everything so that, because they're about to go into the promised land. Okay. Deuteronomy 12.5. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all your tribes. It'll be somewhere in the United, what we then call the United Kingdom of Israel in the future. The different, each tribe had his own, their own geographic location that the Lord had given them. Somewhere among all of that, 
I will choose that place and I will establish, the Lord says, I will establish my name there. The Lord will establish his name there for his dwelling and there you shall come. Now, when, when we hear this, when the Jews look back on this from the time of, especially from the time of David forward, when it says he will establish his name as his dwelling, what did that automatically mean to the Jews? Where is his dwelling? In the temple, right? In Jerusalem. But if you don't accept David, then where do you think he's talking about? Not Jerusalem, right? But something before that. And it turns out it's at Mount Gerizim. Okay. So what she's not... Let me get back to the woman. All right, there's all this background. There's the Jews in Jerusalem in the temple. There's the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. And she's basically asking the Lord, what place did the Lord choose? And you know what's really interesting about that? Jesus didn't give her an answer to that question. Didn't, didn't even answer it. Okay. Let's see that. By the way, he could have, right? I mean, we know, that, we know, well, he tells us in another way. We know the answer that if he had answered her direct question, he would have had to have said, which was what? In Jerusalem, in the temple. But he didn't. He sidestepped it. Why? Because once again, he's single-minded on his objective, not to get into a theological debate and say, we're better than you, but to bring her to understand who he is. Everything that he uses in this conversation will be to that end. Look in John 4, 21. Notice where he goes with this. Very important. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming. You see, she was looking at the past. He's looking at what? The future. He's saying, forget about those old ways of worship. They're going by the wayside. There's a new kind of worship that is coming. As a matter of fact, he's going to say it's already here. John, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem, which was, by the way, a shocking thing again for a Jewish man to say at this point. He's saying, Jerusalem's not the place where we're going to worship. What? What are you talking about? We, go there, we have to go there three times a year for the feast, the Jew would say to him. He says, no, this is a time that's coming when neither in this mountain where the Samaritans worship, nor in Jerusalem where the Jews worship, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, confusion. We worship what we know. We know who Yahweh is. For salvation is from the Jews. But here's the key. An hour is coming and now is. I want you to get the sense of excitement, the sense of something new is dawning. He's talking about a new way of worship. And he says, not only is it coming in the future, it's here right now. So then when she's standing there, she is standing at the time when this new form of worship is coming out on the world. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Not in mountain or temple, not in a geographic location or a building, but in spirit and truth. For such people, notice this, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He is going to be, he desires now that his people, which is going to turn out to be the church in short order, worship him in the spirit and the truth about who he is. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. An hour is coming 
and now is. Another mind-blowing statement. Think about it. Especially since he's saying, I, I'm telling you, I'm the one to let you know this, that there, will, there is a time, and it's already here, when, when we won't worship anymore in the temple in Jerusalem. We won't. Right? That's why, by the way, remember John the Baptist, his ministry wasn't in Jerusalem. Right? It was outside of Jerusalem. Time is coming, and now is. The time of salvation is coming. And it had arrived in the very person of, that was, of the man who was standing there with her. He brought it with him, as it were. He was the new, I am the way, he will say later, and the truth, right, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father. Nobody worships the Father except through me. I am the new form of worship. It had come in the person of the Christ. We know that he will baptize in the Holy Spirit. We saw that. John, the first thing that John said about him was that. In the Spirit. And the true worshipers will worship the Father, therefore, in spirit and truth. Now, Jesus has come. And one of the things he's done is to reveal the fullness of who God really is. The fullness of who God really is. And I want you to see that as we close today in John chapter 1. Just go back to John chapter 1. We've already been over this ground together, but let's go see it again. Let's review something, revisit something. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The one who speaks this baptizes in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will indwell the hearts of believers very, very soon. Already, of course, Jesus has has the Spirit indwelling in him as well, in his humanity. John 1.17, For the law was, was given through Moses. See how that's the past already when John is writing this? Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God the Father at any time. But the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, that's Jesus, the Son of God, he has what? Explained him. In other words, he's explaining things about God that nobody in the Old Testament could have known. Because now that he's come, God in the flesh, he dwelt among us. Now he's revealing things about the Father that had never been known before. And now people are going to be able to worship the Father in spirit, the Holy Spirit, and truth of who Jesus revealed the Father to be and who Jesus actually is, God in the flesh. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Amen. The world. He has come to save all people. Not just Jews. As a matter of fact, not just Samaritans either. All people. And those people won't be able, think about it, if the, if the, if the principle, if the rule was in place that you had to worship only in the temple in Jerusalem, right? Without a miracle, okay, it would be impossible. Especially back then, right? I mean, I mean just for the sake of argument, let's just say that you lived in, in China, Right? And you have, to, you have to travel to Jerusalem three times a year. You're back and forth. You know, it'd probably take you six months just to do the journey once, right? It's impossible. And the, and the fact of the matter is that it's not needed anymore, right? It, it's spirit and in truth. You can worship him anywhere, any place, anytime. As long as you're worshiping in the spirit and in the truth about who he is. Not the lie. The Samaritans worshiped in the lie, Okay. Billions of people worshiping the lie. That's no good, right? The truth is what matters most of all. The truth about who Jesus is, who God the Father is, 
All right? And in spirit. We've been, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In other words, spell it out. Worship will no longer be confined to a mountain or a temple or a cathedral or anything else. A mosque, nothing. It'll be not. It'll be in the hearts of the people who have had the Holy Spirit indwelling and who know who God is. All right, let's get done now. John 4, we're coming to the climax. John 4, 25 to 26. The woman said to him, now, now get, it, get the picture. Now that she, she sees that he's the prophet, now that he's, she's hearing that he's inaugurating a whole new way of worship in spirit and in truth. She's in that place where now she's going to start talking about the most important thing in her worldview about that future and about who would come. Notice, John, the woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming. I think the angels were cheering. Why? Because she's finally talking about what matters, the person, right? I know the Messiah is coming. And then, then of course, here comes John for his Greek audience, who is called Christ. Okay. When that one comes, when that one comes, now she's talking about the future. There will be a day in the future when that one will come. And when he comes, he will, in the future, declare all things to us. If this were a game of hot and cold, right now she would be piping hot, red hot. Everything will be clear when the Messiah comes. There is a Messiah. He's going to clear everything up. It's only one step left. Because the thing is, he's already arrived. He's already arrived. John 4, 26. I who speak to you am he. They got there. She got there. He got her there. I who speak to you am he. Who? The one who has the water of, of, of eternal life. The one who is the prophet has been expected by the Samaritans. The one, the one who, who uh, knows everything about her. The one who is inaugurating a new system of worship. A new kind of worship. He's here. I who speak to you am he. Eureka. I know that's words out of favor today. I have found it. That's what that means. The woman has found it. She has now found him for whom her soul, that thirst, has yearned. And next, she's going to want every one of her people to meet him too. Stay tuned. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you today for this remarkable conversation that the Apostle John has recorded for us. And just to, to, to help us to understand so much, actually, about who you are and about who he is and the love that he has and the patience that he has. Father, we uh, ask you that we would learn, too, from this, that it would change our hearts in a way that we recognize more about the grandeur of who you are and the greatness of Jesus and the salvation that he came to bring and the total knowledge of all people that he has. And that that may change us in our approach to others and our understanding of who we are. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right. Next this week for us, Thursday evenings, Bible study. 6.30. Okay, we're doing it on Skype still. Hopefully the day is coming soon. We'll be able to gather together again. It's soon. It's almost here, I think. Yeah, I don't know. You know, the, I'm sure the mayor of uh, Pompano may have a different idea. I don't know. But anyway, um, 
for now it's on Skype 6.30 Thursdays. If you, if you want to join us, if you haven't in the past, just go to our website. That's our website. Ignore the stop up behind. I'll talk about that in a second. www.lbible.org. That's our website. lbible.org. There you will find on the day, on Thursday, there will be... Um, an announcement on the front page of the, of the website that will talk about, hey, tonight's the Bible study, here's how you get on. At the end, we pray together. Okay, now we know, we just learned that we can worship anywhere. God wants us to pray and everywhere at all times, okay? But there is something special about us all getting together and praying as one body. We do that on Thursday evenings at the end of Bible study. The reason I said we'll talk about that second thing in the bottom is because of our giving policy. We don't pass around the basket. We don't tithe. Why? Because a new era has dawned and a new kind of worship in spirit and in truth, not in legalistic ways. The Lord says, I want givers who give from their heart in gratitude for the word of God and my son. And so that when I allow them to, in terms of their financial situation, I want them to be as generous as they possibly can. But I don't want anybody to force them to do it. That's our policy. When the Lord has, has given you the, everything you need to, to give, then you give. Okay? So not tithing. It's not 10%. We're not going to have a drive where everybody's looking around. Who's giving more than I am? It's not going to happen. All right? And then, so that's why we, we provide, that's called passive ways. You can, the box in the back, you can put it in, you can go online, but uh, there's never going to be any pressure, as, at least as long as I'm behind the pulpit, I can tell you. Unless I lose my mind, then you should get rid of me behind the pulpit. But the gospel, preach it, simple. Everyone is born a sinner. Every one of us has that thirst in our souls. God knew what had happened to his his greatest creation that we had fallen and rather than leaving us on the ground to die he decided he was going to send his perfect son God the son and that person would become human as well as remain God and he would go to die on a cross for us for all people all people God is not willing that any should perish and he died for our sins and your sins, everybody's sins, whoever's listening today, whoever you come across this week, Jesus already died for their sins. He was buried. And on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead so that whoever simply drinks of the water, believes in him, will never perish, but has eternal life. Believe in the Lord and you will be saved. All right. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we want to thank you for all that we've been able to accomplished together today, our understanding of, the, of John chapter 4, our understanding of your heart, our understanding of the gospel and a motivation and, and, and to just look at Jesus and it will all come, to come clear. And we just ask now, Father, that you would take care of us as you promised you would and that you would uh, look after us and that help us in our hearts to know that you're working all things together for good. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And with that, you are dismissed. Have a great day in the Lord.